This is Inside the Writer's Head with Kurt Dynan, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2016-2017 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community, all while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Our podcast starts now. Hi, this is Kurt Dynan, author of Don't Get Caught in Cincinnati Public Library's Writer-in-Residence with another episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Today I'm talking with Lance Rubin, author of the hilarious Denton Little's Death Date and its equally hilarious sequel, Denton Little's Still Not Dead. Lance lives in Brooklyn where he does a lot of arty things like co-hosting a podcast, directing web series, narrating audiobooks, and writing screenplays. Lance and I are email buddies, although we almost did meet once. He came to town as a part of a book tour, but we couldn't get together because it was the day my daughter was born, proving <laughs> once again that children ruin everything. Welcome, Lance. Thank you, Kurt. I'm so, so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great having you. Thanks for thanks for doing this. Uh, I'm actually going to start by putting you on the spot. Um, the two Denton Little novels are based on a great premise and one that anyone could explain, but I like hearing authors pitch their own novels. So... Uh, Tell the, no- tell the listeners what the novels are about, if you would. Yes, of course. So Denton Little's Death Date, which is the first book, takes place in a world just like our own, except for one key difference, which is that everyone knows their death date. So as soon as they're born, they find out the day they're going to die as well. I mean, they're babies, so they can't process it then. But their parents know the day they're going to die. You don't know the time of day. You don't know how you're going to die but you know the exact date. And the protagonist of this book is obviously Denton Little. His name is in the title. Uh, He was a 17-year-old whose death date is tomorrow. So we wake up with him. This is like a really long premise. I'm sorry. This is not the elevator pitch. It's it's the rambly premise that I give when I'm at uh, cocktail parties or meeting strangers at the mall. Denton wakes up on the day before his death date, which is also the day of his funeral, because in this world... You get to attend your own funeral since you know when you're going to die. It makes sense for you to be there. You get to hear eulogies about you, give your own eulogy. And anyway, Denton is kind of a uh, a dude who always wanted to live a normal life. He didn't want the fact that he was going to die early to to change you know, the way people treated him or anything like that. And so then as he approaches his death date, he starts to realize, oh, wait, I mean, I'm, I'm I've known my whole life I was going to die now, but now I'm realizing like maybe I've lived incorrectly. And then he sees this like weird purple rash on his thigh that kind of expands throughout the book. And a lot of crazy things start happening and and not going the way he thought they would as he heads toward the day of his death. Uh, and we accompany him on that wacky journey. Yeah, that's that's good. That's a good pitch. I mean, it, it's a serious premise. And I, I know you probably had problems with this. Like, it's a serious premise, but the books are hilarious. Thank you. Yes. I mean, that, that is always what I have to say after that premise. I'm like, and even though that sounds intense, it's a dark comedy. Yeah. I, I pitch the book to older readers is like, it's to me, it's the hangover meets Harold and Maude. Um, <laughs> yes. Which, you know, I think a majority of like young adult readers wouldn't understand. Right. right? They're like, it's okay, the hangover. I think I've heard of that. Right. I think it's pretty accurate. I mean, the novels are really, really funny. And it's it's dark humor, absolutely. Yeah, I lo- no, I love that. I've never heard it described that way, that those two movies combined. And that's really fun. I've heard those separately mentioned, but that's well done, Kurt. 
That's well, thank you, thank you. That's why I, uh, I that's why I'm the writer in residence. Yeah, uh, totally, totally. A, um, but I think I do. I think young adult like needs more humor in it. You know, I think most YA novels, at least the ones uh, that I see and read, they seem to be really like issue driven or fantasy based. Yep, yep, for and sure. I wonder, as you were re- writing, you know, did you ever find yourself kind of second guessing, like, wait a minute, in a world of like these young adult novels, I'm writing something funny. Like, did you ever? question that totally um i totally get your question and i totally did not question that but that was because i kind of came at the world of ya not knowing much about the world of ya now now i know a ton about the world of ya but at the time i was writing the book you know before i started writing it i was mainly an actor um i was doing like sketch comedy stuff and i was doing a lot of theater and you know my acting career then kind of hit a wall which is, you know, we've talked about this before in the past, you and I, so I'm not going to go into great detail here. But anyway, my acting career was floundering and I was just looking for some way to be creative, creatively empowered. And at that time, I read The Hunger Games and I was like, whoa, this is really cool, really fun. And meanwhile, I'd had this idea in my head for this kind of death date world. It was an idea I'd, I'd been holding on to that I thought maybe I'd write into a, a movie and I hadn't. And so when I read The Hunger Games and when my acting career was going terribly and I was feeling creatively disempowered, I was like, I'm going to take that death date idea and make the characters in their teens instead of their 20s and try and write a young adult novel. You know, I often now, like years later, I like kind of pine for the, the innocence I had because I yeah. was just kind of like writing it for myself, trying to make myself laugh, feeling like, oh, these, this is like a cool story involving teenagers. And, you know, I had certainly read some classics of YA and I, I was obsessed and still am with Harry Potter, but I did, I was not familiar with the YA landscape the way I am now. And you're totally right that now more than ever, YA is so issue driven and so fantasy driven. Like if you're going to look at the New York times bestseller list, that's mainly what you're going to find other than like John Green books and, you know, maybe other things that have turned into movies that then can get popular once they're a movie. But so this is a long-winded way of saying I, I wasn't thinking about it then, but now, now that I've like had these books published and I've been working on a third book, like that stuff is on my mind a lot. And I kind of always try and get back to the place where it's like write for yourself, write. Right. You know, it's like you can't it's it's very tricky to try and balance these things because you start to understand the YA market and what is succeeding. And you know, the Denton books I feel like have been very successful in a lot of ways, but in, in other ways you know, did not sales did not meet expectations that the publishers had. And, you know, I've had to grapple with this exactly what you're saying that funny YA doesn't always isn't always the a best selling thing commodity. For whatever reason, I feel like middle grade is what what I've discovered is where a lot you'll see a lot more funny stuff succeeding. And I think that's because I, I don't really know why people could uh, this is all uh theory theorizing on my part but that teenagers really want the darkness more and they you know even though i think of myself as a teenager i love laughing but for whatever reason funny ya is not not always what people are flocking toward and middle grade i think people are more at that age you know eight to twelve you're just like more willing to laugh you want to find laughs in books i think a lot more boys are reading books I wish that was not the case, but a lot more boys are reading books at the middle grade age. And then they kind of, you see less, less boys reading uh, right. at the teenage time. So 
Thanks for letting me ramble, but that's that's a long answer to your question. No, but I, I think you're right. I mean, I think teenagers in general want to brood a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and, and they want to read stuff that, I mean, I teach teenagers. I love teenagers, you know, like, but there's also that feeling of, you know, if they are reading something that's issue driven and very serious, I mean, that does reflect on them that like, oh, that's a serious person, right? That's somebody to be taken seriously. Right, right. What a lot of teenagers want. But with funny books, you know, I could have, I could give any kid in my classroom your book, regardless of what they read. And, and they loved it, you know? Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. And, and that was, that was always the case with kind of like books I would consider funny YA, you know? Is it Libba, Liba Bray? Uh, Libba Bray, yeah. Libba Bray, right? You know, I can give a kid going bovine and they just love it, you know? For sure. Um, and, and it's not normally what they flock to, but I think kids do, they do want to laugh, right? But they also want to kind of keep up this image of, no, I'm serious and I need to be taken seriously. Exactly. And I think also what happens, because I even do this myself, is that when you hear about funny book, you kind of imagine like just a book of jokes or something. Yeah. Suddenly it feels like, oh, well, there, there's no weight or depth to it. And and I certainly have tried with the Denton little books to make it them funny books, but that have depth. And I feel like what Don't Get Caught, you do this as well. Like there is, you know, a human story happening underneath. It just happens to be a book that is kind of leaning into the humor of life while, you know, dealing, dealing with characters who are going through real things. And I think that sometimes gets lost once, as soon as you call a book funny, it's like, well, I don't want to just sit and go like, ha ha, read a bunch of knock knock jokes. (laughs) It's like, but that's not, it's not what it is. Not what it is. Right. Hard to explain that to people. Yeah. It's almost like you need a new word, not, not dramedy because that, that's no. kind of played out in its own way, but some some other word. So it's like, this is like a a, a deep laughter book. <laughs> there you go. That's perfect. That's yeah. the name of your next book, right? Great. Right. <laughs> Done. So when you when you, I mean, Denton's story is it's two books, two novels. Did you conceive it that way, or is this like a Star Wars thing where you wrote it all out and you're like, wait, this is way too long. I have to just focus on this one story for right now. Yes. Well, actually, Kurt, it, it was conceived as three books, believe oh. it or not. Yes. I had broad ambitions and also, you know, had just come off of reading Hunger Games. Just like, I'll just do that. That's the great trilogy. Yeah. Um, and so it was three books in my head. And I had written, the. by the time I got my agent, I had written the first book and had kind of like very broad strokes of a second and third and she kind of looked at my outline and, and at that time, which was 2013, she said, you know, there's a lot of trilogy fatigue in the publishing industry right now. I think they kind of went nuts buying a lot of trilogies that didn't necessarily, you know, the first book would come out and not be that successful. And suddenly all the publishers would be like, why did we just buy this whole trilogy? So she said, you know, just make it two books. I think, you know, you'll have a, a better chance of selling it. And also an added bonus for me was like, well, then, you know, all the story I'd the, the spotty story ideas I had for books two and three, I was like, yeah, let's just make it one book. And then I can, then I know I have enough story to fill this thing instead of having to do like the fillery, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, two towers bridge yes. book, which so often happens. Um, so I'm really, really happy. My agent convinced me to just do two, but, but I definitely was writing the first one, knowing story things that were going to happen in the second book. And you know, this is a side note. I, I'm actually right now. I've been re, 
uh, so I wrote a draft of the screenplay for Denton Little's Death Date. Oh, nice. It, yes, it is by no means going to get made necessarily. I, I certainly hope it will. That's been a, a whole separate long journey of writing. But but so I've been just today I was rewriting uh, this this draft and kind of like cutting stuff out and figuring it out. And one of the tricky parts is the first book, not to give too much away for anyone who hasn't read it, but it ends on a cliffhanger. And I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, who knows if they'll even make one movie, let alone two. So right. trying to figure out a way to make it more of a self-contained thing while still having that cliffhanger in spirit. And it's it's very tricky. Well, I was wondering about that a minute ago. Like if your agent had said, you know what, this is one book. Right. One book. Could could you have come up with an ending? <laughs> no, could I don't you- think so. There would have been way too much left unexplained or I would have like that. It's exactly the problems I'm kind of grappling with because the story is so designed to kind of funnel into this second book that, that, yeah, I'm not sure. And, and that's, you know, the whole idea of that, these two books has been so interesting. Even when advanced copies of the first book went out, the publisher did not give any indication that there was a second book at the end. Like right now, if you read the first book, you're like, also, you know the second book is out because it's out already. But when you get to the end of the first book of the hardcover, it would say like, oh, and coming, you know, in a year, the, the second Denton book. So you'd be like, oh, but people would get to the end of the advanced copy and think that this like cliffhanger end was the end of the book. <laughs> and a lot of people were like confused and angry and had so many unanswered questions and then had to like go on the Internet to be like, wait, is there a second book? And then. You know, it was, I feel like there were angry comments on Goodreads. And <laughs> and in general, even once the book came out, there's a lot of people thinking it was a standalone who, you know, gave it like two stars. It was like, I thought this was going to be a standalone. Then I got to the end and I was like, I was not in the mood to read another book, <laughs> so, which was very surprising to me because I, I was thinking like, oh, what a cool thing. You get to the end and then there's this cliffhanger and you're like, whoa, I can't wait to read the next one. Right. But it's not, it's not a book in a series. I mean, it's not it's it's self-contained like you can read the first harry potter and stop after the first one and you have a complete story you're like okay you know i get it yes (laughs) your book you know ends and it's like okay where's the next one like right picks up right there right which is yeah which is cool but it's also been a highly educational experience about like reader expectations going in like people want to know what reading experience they're going to have they want to know if it's going to be a two-part thing um, and that has all been very illuminating to me because I just didn't. I thought like, yeah, if you finish one, you got some unanswered questions, and then you, you know, you wait for the next one. It's that naivete, right? It's just yeah, it's just yeah. Which you know, that's that's the beauty, the beauty of it too. When you kind of go in and you know you're none the wiser, there's something something very charming about that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really liked about the novels is. You know, they have this great premise of knowing when you're going to die, but but the the novels aren't overly dependent on that. Like I think most authors would would go with. I mean, essentially to me at least, it's a book about friendship and like what you'll do for your friends. Mm, yeah, for sure. You know, and I thought you know the the relationship between Denton and Paolo was very like teenage boyish, authentic, <laughs> and hilarious in like so many ways that. Uh, I think a lot of young adult novels kind of skip over now, you know, just like the goofiness, you know, of having that person you can be close to and can confide in, you know, did you, did you base that friendship on 
friendships you've had or, or Apollo on, on a specific person? Um, I did, in fact. Everyone, and, and thank you first. It's really nice oh. you know, that, that you had that experience of the book and that it came off that way. Um, but yes, Paolo is primarily um, based on my buddy Ray Munoz, who um, I have known for years now. I met him at uh, Williamstown Theater Festival right after college. We were both apprentices at this theater festival in Massachusetts. And, uh, and then he and I went on to have a sketch comedy show together that we, we wrote the show and then acted. It was like essentially just a two-person show. We acted in it together. So back when Denton Little was a screenplay idea in my head, I was like thinking maybe I would play Denton and then Ray would play the best friend. And so then when I segued into writing it as a young adult novel, I was like, oh, naturally I'll just continue thinking of Ray as this best friend. And that was really helpful because I knew I had so internalized from, from years of writing the sketch comedy show with him and just years of being close friends with him, had internalized our banter and knew kind of what the, the comedic rhythm of that was. So naturally flowed into Denton and Paolo. Um, and then since I didn't actually know Ray during high school, um, my other best friend in life is my buddy, Zach. And so a lot of the specific details of the kinds of things Denton and Paolo do together and the, the ways, some of the ways they talk to each other, just like saying stupid stuff is very much stolen directly from my relationship with Zach. So yeah, Paolo, Paolo as a result, you know, so many people love the character Paolo, which I can kind of take credit for, but I'm also like, yeah, like you would love Ray if you met him. <laughs> and, and Ray is such a gracious human being that he's just like psyched to have a character inspired by him <laughs> and not like, why'd you steal who I am? <laughs> well, and, and, they, and people probably love that character too, because he's so real because you've based him on somebody you know yes. so well. Right? You haven't had to completely fabricate this person and, and draw them out of the air, which is so damn hard to do. It's so hard to do. So hard to do. I mean, I definitely would, you know, now with other characters, even when I'm not basing them that directly on someone I know, you're always trying to take specific details from people you do know and just kind of create a hybrid because that goes such a long way in grounding a character and, and allowing a reader to connect with the character because they're like, oh, that seems like such a specific, quirky right. thing. Like, you know, just like I have something like that with my friend, it just the specifics really give a reader a way in, I think. Yeah, that's it's always the specifics that are like the best part, right? Where you yeah. know it has to be based on something because nobody could ever just make that up. Yes. So one of the things I really appreciate about the novel uh, the novels is if you don't shy away from what people would call quote unquote bad teenage behavior, you know, <laughs> we have, we have, uh, you know, there's sex and there's drugs and there's bad language in the novel. Yeah. And I was, I just wondered if like, and I, and I love that. Like, I love all of that stuff anyway, but like to read about it at least. Yeah. And, and I wondered is, is as you wrote it, was there any pushback, you know, from your agent or your editor or even from yourself as you were writing the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, again, like I, I was going from this naive place where I was like, I don't, I don't know how much I can get away with in, in the young adult world. Um, I definitely remember, and this is so funny to think about, but like the first half of the book, I think I wrote thinking I couldn't curse. And so like, I just didn't, I wasn't cursing at all. And then as I was writing, I was also reading more books and seeing like, oh, people curse in books. So then I started dotting curses in. And then this is so funny that 
by the time I wrote the first draft of the second book, or it was like the second draft or something, whatever it was that my agent first read, one of her big notes was, she was like, there are more F-bombs in this book than I think any book I've ever read, young adult or adult. I was like, okay, okay, duly noted, great, excellent. She's like, you gotta, you gotta rein those in. But with the first one, I was very conservative. And then even once I realized I could curse, I think there wasn't, there wasn't a ton of it. And as far as the sex and drugs, yeah, I just felt like I wanted it to be true to my experience and memory of being a teenager. And so I just felt like, oh, let me just, you know, without going overboard here, I, I don't want to get gratuitous, but uh, I want this to feel honest. And especially Denton, who's like about to die, you know, it's like, right. he's got to have sex. Like, how could he not go for sex? So that any doubts I had, it was like, well, especially in this situation, you know, I, I feel feel good about doing this. But then I was always waiting for some pushback or just curious and no, no, none ever came. And, you know, now I've read so many YA novels and see that, like, I guess maybe there are some limits, but it's pretty, uh, it's pretty much open season for just like honesty and showing the realities of teenage life. Yeah, it's something I struggle with now. Like the draft, the manuscript I'm working on now, it, it's mostly a profanity issue. Like, mm -hmm. and I don't know why I hesitate. I actually had one F-bomb in uh, Don't Get Caught, and I stared at it for, for days. And I know. Finally, I, mean, I got rid of it. And it was because it was great. A, a, a woman I know who teaches seventh grade, who's one of my readers, she goes, it doesn't really help the novel. She goes, and I can push this novel a lot easier. And most middle grade teachers could push it more easily if that word's not there. And I was like, it's only one word. You know, it's not throughout yeah. the book. It was used once. And I was like, oh, that's enough for me just to get rid of it. You know, the, the manuscript I'm working on now, it's, you know, I have profanity all over and, and it's not going to change. But I still sit there and go, Ugh, is there going to be a problem with this later down the line? Right. I know. It's really something you have to think about because I, I think you were right to take out the one instance of it and don't get caught because unless like you're saying it's just like woven into the character's lives so deeply, you can usually come up with a different word to kind of capture the same meaning. And now that I've been, you know, to book festivals in a lot of different states, and I remember when I was at the Texas Librarians Association conference, TLA, one time, there were some teachers who were definitely like, no, once you've got like profanity in there, we can't even carry it in our school library because some schools are just very conservative that way. Right. And that definitely made me think like, I'm, I'm certainly not trying to censor what I'm doing, but it, it makes me think long and hard. Like, do I need this or can the book and the intention and the meanings remain the same without it? And certainly the third book I'm writing, I am not liberally, liberally dropping in curses the same way in this one because I just feel like, oh, let me let me try and challenge myself to, to use <laughs> challenge yourself. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Can I write without using profanity? I just don't know. I'm just not sure. Let's see. Let's find out. <laughs> so you did you did the audio. You I mean, I'm sorry, you did the narration for your audio books too, right? I did. I did. What was that like? Oh, it was actually very, very thrilling for the most part. Thr thrilling is the main thing because since I had been an actor before that. This was like the fusion of like my actor self and my writer self. Sure. And it felt very exciting. That said, just the, the act of recording an audiobook, reading like a long book over a series of days is exhausting. And you wouldn't think so, but you're, you're sitting there, you're like, you're just on the whole time. There's no phoning it in. There's no autopilot. You're just focused 
on telling the story animatedly, expressively for hours at a time. And it, it really takes it out of you. Were there any lines where as you read them aloud, you were thinking, dear God, that's a terrible line. I wish yeah. I could go back and revise it right now. Definitely. Absolutely. 100%. But it's yeah, too I, late. Yeah, it's too late. I have, I, have, I have a line in the first chapter. So anytime I do a public reading, I'm just like, ugh, I just cringe every time I say it aloud. Uh, you could probably change it for the reading. <laughs> That's not a bad idea, actually. All right, you have the license to do that. And then people will be like, where's that really good line I liked? Hmm. This, this question probably should have come earlier when you were talking about comedy. But like you said, you've done – you had this comedy podcast. And yes. you perform funny songs on YouTube singing about the Denton novels, which everyone needs to check those out. And I mean you're a funny person in general. You know that. I know that. But writing comedy – it was hard, right? I mean, you can't write a person's inflection, right? Which is it's so important to comedy. You know, you yeah. don't get visual gags. You know, there are no sight gags there. It's all black words on a white page. But, you know, you you pull it off um, as other people do. But do you have tips for anyone who wants to try to write something funny? Or 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 do you even think is, is someone who can't be funny, is someone who isn't funny, can they become funny if they want to be? Yeah, these these are great questions. I think, all right, so I, I do think there's a component of funniness that is just kind of born with it a little bit or born into it or coming from a, a funny family that imprinted on you. You know, I, I think there is a component of that, which is kind of like you're funny or you're not. That said, that said, I do think so much of humor for me is just observing the world and being able to like honestly capture it in something you're writing. You know, there's a big book in the improv world called truth in comedy. That is kind of, it's an improv comedy guide, but, but that idea of, you know, the, the humor is in the truthfulness of the moment. I think that's so true. So even if you're not necessarily born with the comedic rhythms or, or whatever that might be, I do think you can a pick those up by watching lots of comedy, reading lots of comedy but but B, I think sometimes, you know, there's there's things I watch, TV shows, movies or books I read where, where something is so funny. But just because you have that aha moment of like, this is how life is. And the writer just gets it in there in this kind of like seamless way that really nails a truth. So I, I think funny often is less about like trying so hard to be funny and really just trying to uh, observe the world and then like capture it honestly. And, and you'll stumble into a lot of humor that way because it's just kind of like the recognition factor of seeing these weird things that humans do and, and putting it on the page. I, maybe that's why there aren't a whole lot of funny YA novels out there anyway. Right. <laughs> it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy. No. And, and I've been kind of like, doing comedy in some form or other my whole life. And it's still, it's not, no, it's not easy. There's lots of like polishing and rewriting and just, you know, uh, the dialogue in my books, I think I wrote probably like for all the dialogue you read, there's probably twice as much was written and I had to like cut it down and figure out, okay, what, what actually works? You know, when you have too much dialogue, that seems funny. Then it's like, it's overkill. And then suddenly it's not funny anymore. It's like, Oh, they've been talking forever. This is this banter is melting my brain. So there is kind of a mathematical logic that gets applied to the raw materials that 
then when you read it, it, it feels so effortless. And that's why I, another reason why I think comedy doesn't get taken seriously because good comedy feels like, oh, wow. It's like you're just hanging out with your friends and it feels right. so easy um, when feels in actuality and lots of work has gone into it. Yeah, I I it's it's almost a vanity I have with Don't Get Caught where I just want to like people are like, I read this in one sitting and it was yes. really funny. and I go, I just want to go, but it did take me two years. Like yeah. you understand that this this wasn't it was easy for you to read, but it was not easy for me to write it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Whereas like even though it's a huge compliment when someone reads it in one sitting sometimes you want someone to be like i just savored this over three months like <laughs> thank <it>. you <laughs> thank you that's like almost one tenth of the time it took me to write it <laughs> so you've hinted it like you're working on something now your third novel is that something you can share about or are you like superstitious like some writers which i totally get where you're like i don't want to talk about a work in progress because yeah die the moment i mention it yeah, I lean more superstitious, but I will tell you that I've been working on it a long time, Kurt. Like when we <laughs> when we first started uh, getting to know each other back in spring 2015, I was writing the same book. And I will say that it is a female protagonist, which has been a fun change of pace, but challenging because I want I want it to be honest and feel feel true to life. But it used to, up until January of this year, it, it involved this female protagonist having superpowers that she discovered. And then, for some stupid reason, I had written 300-plus pages of this book before showing anything to my editor, who hadn't bought it yet, but could see it, like had the option to look at it first. And so I was writing it. I hadn't finished the first draft. Finally, I was like, you know what? I'm going to just show her some of it and see if she wants to buy it based on that. And I showed it to her, you know, through my agent in January. She was like, yeah, I like a lot of things about this, but I don't like this whole superhero <laughs> thing. <laughs> I was like, well, that's pretty much that's the, the main thing of the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's been a torturous first half of the year, 2017. You know, thankfully, she does like working with me and I like working with her. So we had a long conversation about it and, you know, found some common ground of ways to retain like the, the central themes of the book while eliminating the superhero part. And then I like left that conversation feeling really energized. But then I realized like, oh, I'm actually rewriting this whole thing. And right. those 300 plus pages are pretty much not usable. <laughs> so <laughs> now I'm I'm at 130 pages of a first draft. I've risen from the ashes. It's a mess, but uh, it feels, I feel hopeful that it will be a book that people read. So, yeah, but man, writing is hard. See, that's what I don't, I, I wish more people understood. Like whenever I, I, I've done like question and answers, I, I try to work this in that the book is never, the finished product is generally never what you've, you've pictured it to be. Yes. You know? Yes. It's not, you know, if, I, and I always say, you know, I went through nine or 10 drafts of Don't Get Caught before it became what it is. And if you read the first draft, you'd be like, this isn't that book. And I'd be like, I know, you know, <laughs> right. things metamorphosize as, as you're writing, you know. So, like, does does your character still have the superpowers or not? No. No. So it's like, not a superpower book anymore. Yeah. But you're going to end up with this book. You're going to you're going to love it. You're going to be proud of it. And yeah. And you're probably going to forget most of the superhero stuff because it's just like, right. 
part of the process, but it's part of the process that most people don't understand. Yep. Yep. No, I, I think stories like, like this one that I've gone through and what you're saying, writing nine to 10 drafts are so, so, so important for aspiring writers to hear because I mean, it's, it's so hard not to start writing a book and think like that it's supposed to come out the way books are on the shelf. You just feel like, Oh, you know, I remember writing my first draft of Denton Little's death date and thinking like, yeah, I'll probably have like some typos and have to like cut a few lines, but like that'll, that'll probably be pretty close to what it is, <laughs> which is so ridiculous and so naive. Right. But until until you go through it and understand like, no, rewriting, you know, the first draft is just making the clay. And then you have, you know, so many drafts that are like sculpting the clay into a beautiful statue. Yeah. I always go with, uh, it's like you're an inventor. And you've made this prototype that works. You're like, it works in the worst way, right? It's like spinning smoke <laughs> and leaking oil, and it's covered in gum and duct tape to make it work. But, yes. but by God, it works. Like that's your first draft, and the other drafts are like fixing the stupid thing. Like, yes, people don't that's get it. You know, they just don't. They don't understand that, and most people don't want to understand that stuff. They don't understand that your agent is going to ask you to ed- to revise it, and then the editor is going to ask you to revise it. Yes, that is part of the fun. Part of the fun, indeed. I think I'd I'd definitely be remiss if we didn't talk about your your clear favorite movie and one of my favorite movies, Back to the Future. Yes. What what is it about that movie that you love so much? Oh, I do love it. It's a very important movie to me. Important. That that's 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 what I want to know. Important. Yes. Well, I think first of all. I started watching that at the impressionable age of like five or six. And it okay. just and, – and from a, a, the very most basic level, Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox's character, seemed like the, the epitome of cool to me. He's cool, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think I'm not alone in saying that. I think there's like a million males of our generation who, who feel that way. Um, just the way he's riding his skateboard from the very beginning. He's holding on to the back of that truck, like right. you know, waving at women who are in the, the aerobic studio. And it's like, this guy is so cool. But then, you know, it just I kind of discovered more and more about the movie as I as I grew up and kept watching it. I mean, I just love I, I that is, I think, my bread and butter stories where and maybe it's because I love Back to the Future. I, I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, but stories that are really just grounded in human relationships, but have this kind of fantastical element that doesn't take it to the, the fantastical realm of Lord of the Rings, but is still something that would not happen in real life. And I just love that we use time travel for him to examine his parents' relationship and then end up getting in the middle of that relationship is just such a fantastic what if. And I think, you know, and it's executed with such charm and a lightness. So it's such a fun time you're watching it. But really, that's like a very kind of intense thing to imagine getting in between your young parents and your mom having a crush on you and then maybe you'll never exist because like your mom has a crush on you instead of your dad. Like that's actually really intense. And yet somehow it all feels light and funny. And a lot of it's the performances from Michael J. Fox is just fantastic. You know, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson as the mom, Crispin Glover as his dad. Like it's just such interesting, funny performances. And I'm sure at this point you've seen the clips of Eric Stoltz playing Marty McFly. Yes. It's just painful. I mean, it's just, a totally different movie. Totally different movie. I know that is a, a such a fantastic 
example of just like, you know, the creative alchemy of a project and one thing being different. And suddenly it's like, this doesn't, this doesn't work well. And Eric Stoltz is like a really likable actor too, in many other movies. All right. So we've covered that. That's good. Cause I mean, you you bring it up all the time. And I mean, and it's a great thing to bring up. I mean, I like you mentioned it and it's what I always tell my creative writing students is like, it has probably the greatest what if premise I've ever, I've ever heard. Like, yeah to go back in time and see your parents as teenagers. I'm like, it's just so brilliant. It's so brilliant. I mean, it is, if it hadn't been, if it didn't exist, some YA author would write that premise as a YA novel because it's so, yeah, it's so, so, so good. All right. So my, for my final question, we're going to play dinner party. All right. And I've, I've prepped Ooh. you for this question because this is, and you and can use you did. all the parties you go to. This will start fights. <laughs> You can invite one writer, one rocker, one actor or actress, and one miscellaneous person. But all these people must be living, all right? Because uh, as we know, dead people at the party are kind of buzzkills. So who are you yeah. going to invite? Okay, yeah, the dinner party question. I, I am glad you prepped me because that's always – I still have memories. <laughs> Just a quick, quick sidetrack. I have memories being asked this question at a college interview and being put on the spot. And this was a living or dead thing. You know, who would you? And my answers still mystify me. I said, Kevin Spacey, who I like, I guess I I was into at the time, but like, it's so random. But I was like, who? Kevin Spacey. Because he was like, American Beauty was out around that time. Right. Um, And then I said, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) And like, (laughs) yeah. And I, sure, I've read Alice in Wonderland and like, I, I appreciate him. Like, I would never, that would never be my pick in a million years. And I remember thinking, like, why'd you say that? But the woman interviewing me was very kind. She's like, oh, yes. What a wonderful mind. What a wonderful imagination. <laughs> so that's just to say I'm, I'm generally bad at this. So I've, I've given it some thought. Um, okay. But my people are uh, the writer. Uh, I'm going to get J.K. Rowling there. Okay. Love Harry Potter. Love her. Great Twitter presence. Yes, would love, yes, she does. Would love to talk with her. The rocker, Ben Folds. Oh, nice, nice call. That's good. Yes. One of my all time favorites. I've seen him in concert many times. I love his, his music. I love his storytelling. Um, the actor, Michael J. Fox, because <laughs> you know, I, I just love him. And, and beyond Back to the Future and other roles he's played. I love both of his books. He has his book, Lucky Man and Always Looking Up. And just like the grace with which he's handled his Parkinson's and, you know, the, his public persona and the way he's been able to kind of navigate that in this totally, like, admirable way. Yeah. And, and but, man, I've had some close brushes almost meeting him, but I have not met him yet. And that one, that one I really want to happen. One time for his... um you know, so he has this book, Always Looking Up, which was about optimism. And he did like an ABC special to tie in with that. Uh-huh. And he, so there's this guy who always handed out newspapers at the subway stop I would always get out at. And he was like the nicest guy. He was very positive. So I got out one day and Michael J. Fox was with that guy filming a segment about how positive this guy was. <laughs> and so I was like two feet away from Michael J. Fox. And Michael J. Fox actually was handing out newspapers with him that day. He did not hand me a newspaper. I, I oh. really wish he had, but okay. But that's just my, I was very close to Michael J. Fox once before story. So that's three. And the fourth, the miscellaneous person, I got to get Obama there. It's going to be Barack. Uh, what a wonderful man. Miss him more now than ever. 
And I just want to, I mean, I, I think about it every day, just like, oh, I would love to just shoot the shit with Obama about all this madness that is going on now. Like what, what is he really thinking? Yeah. How is he handling this? So yes, J.K. Rowling, Ben Folds, Michael J. Fox, and Barack Obama. It's going to be a great meal. That's a great dinner party. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to think about that. Well, to give you a, the opportunity to redeem yourself after naming Lewis Carroll. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. If I, yes, you know, one day <laughs> I'm going to woman, The woman who walked out was probably just going, okay, well. Yeah. <laughs> we have other candidates, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so funny. Is, uh, all right, so to finish up here, is there anything like you'd like to add, throw out, pitch, um, promote, anything like that before we uh, finalize things here? Thank you for this this, this opportunity. This podcast, who, who would you say is listening to it most? Just because if, if I'm going to give one last piece of advice, who am I tailoring it to? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think prospective writers, you know, people who want to be writers or are yeah. on first novels a lot of times um, are listening. Yeah. Let's go with yeah. that. Yeah, that's great. I would just say to all of you prospective writers, like it's all the end of the day, it's all on you to be the person you want to be. So if you want to be a published author, like you can be that now, like now that I am a published author, I really, I feel like the same guy I was then. It's just that added shift of perspective. Like, Oh, I've had a book published, but you can have that feeling and confidence now that you deserve to be there. And and I should say that you, you should do that because then you should take yourself seriously by creating the writing routines or, you know, creating the work habits that will match that feeling. And then you will kind of manifest for yourself um, the writing life you hope for. Um, and I guess what I'm also trying to get at is that, like, even having had books published, like, you, you need to just kind of, like, be your own rock in that you have to find the fulfillment from the writing itself from having a full life in other ways, good relationships. But I still have so many insecure days and going on social media, like forget about it. Like there's always people out there who are succeeding more than you. And that's not even helpful to see. Like we're all on our own journey. So I guess it's it's just take yourself seriously now, but also live your life. Don't solely obsess about the writing. You need to like live the life experiences, have relationships as well that will fuel the writing and fuel just like a, a sense of grounded well-being in yourself, and uh, and you're gonna be fine. Thanks, Lance. That's that great advice. That is a great way to end this. Lance <laughs> it is Lance Rubin's fantastic novel Denton Little's Death Date is now out. As is its fantastic sequel Denton Little Still Not Dead. Thank you, Kurt. Hey, no problem. For the Cincinnati Public Library, I'm writer in residence Kurt Dynan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Inside the Writer's Head podcast is produced by the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. It was recorded in the library's makerspace. Use the makerspace yourself at the main library or select branch locations. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Learn more and read the Inside the Writer's Head blog on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. Subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss future episodes and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.